And welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast. We've got a very special episode tonight because it's number 50, Dan. 50? That's a lot of episodes, Brian. We have not missed a week to date, so you've been good about keeping us consistent. Well, you've joined for all of them, so it's good. Brian, there's a couple other reasons this is a special episode. Okay, what do you got for me? Well, for one... We're sitting in the same place. Oh, wow. It's only the second time it happened. 50 episodes, two in-person recordings. Feels monumental, feels special. And we're also far from home. That's right, we're, we're in a hotel room. We are in Orlando, Florida. So faithful listeners will know that both Brian and I live in the DC area. For a couple of reasons, we have decided to take a little trip down to Orlando. I'm here for two nights. Brian's here for more than a week. Brian, what are some of the things? There's a few things bringing us down here. Can you tell us a couple of them? Yes, so we're thinking that uh, in the morning we're probably gonna go out to Gatorland in Orlando and uh, throw some chicken giblets to alligators and hopefully come away with all our digits. But the main event, the big attraction, We've mentioned it on the show before. If you're a very diligent listener, you might know. I've lined things up. We are going to go meet Aaron Fector, founder of Creative Engineering and creator of the Rockafire Explosion robots that played at Showbiz Pizza Time Theater and then Chuck E. Cheese's. Yeah, so we watched the documentary on the Rockafire Explosion. Both really liked it. Both said at the time, man, wouldn't it be a great field trip for the goods to go down to Orlando, go see the, the factory. And so here we are. I don't, I don't know if we're going to have like another special recap of it or anything. We could think about doing that, Brian, maybe tomorrow night after we're done. But that's, that's what we're looking forward to. And lastly, many of you may know Brian is the host of a horror host TV show, Public Access, in Northern Virginia, where we live. And he's down here filming spooky things in Florida, including some of the things we already mentioned, for his 100th episode. That's right. So milestones all around. And with all those things in mind, I've made this an epic episode. The biggest one ever. The goods. Never been bigger, never been better. Never been gooder. What do we got on the plate, Brian? So long ago, back in fall 2020, when we were getting underway, I did an episode on Over the Garden Wall, which was a, a fall-themed miniseries on Cartoon Network. And I mentioned that I felt a personal connection to that show, unparalleled perhaps except for one other show, which would be a much greater time commitment for us to consume and discuss. But we have now gone and done that because what we are talking about this time around is the series Gravity Falls that aired on the Disney Channel and Disney XD. It incorporated two seasons that aired kind of sporadically between 2012 and 2016. 
Yeah, and you had pitched me on 800 minutes. And I was like, that, that's a lot of watching, but I can probably make that happen in one week. You know, that's what, 13 hours, that's over a week, that's about two hours a day. That's a lot, but that's doable. But then it turned out the math was even a little off from there because it's 40 episodes that are 22 to 23 minutes each. Let's just say 22 brings us up to 880 minutes. Well, we'll talk about this. The series finale is actually a double episode. So that brings us up past 900. And and just for the hell of it, Brian said, hey, Dan, you got to go watch an episode of my public access show, Count Gauntly. It's got some relevant uh, stuff in it. And so I was more than happy to, to watch that, to actually watch that on the plane ride down here to Florida. So we're looking at close to four digits in terms of number of minutes. Definitely going to be a record probably for a long time on this, this show. That's all right, though. It was, it was a thousand minutes well spent. Yeah, I'm glad you put in the time. I will say there was no reason you had to watch it all in a week. I've been <laughs> letting you know about this for a couple months now. More than that, yeah. The uh, the goal was, you know, spread it out over a summer because that's the time span that the show takes place over. Well, as my sub 3.0 college GPA will attest, I am a chronicle procrastinator, but uh, I got it done. Oh, it's all good. I got a 3.92 in high school, 3.92 in college, and I got a humanities degree. And now I'm a construction worker, so we'll see if that changes in the not-too-distant future. But uh, GPA, not the strongest predictor. Well, I am, I think, ready to talk about this, I was going to say movie, it's not a movie, this TV show. And it's 40 episodes, two seasons, it's, it's uh, many character arcs, large mythology, Let's, let's get into it, Brian, unless you have any other prelude for us. Oh, no, I'm I'm ready. Although, as far as prelude, postlude, summary, it's going to be a little scattershot tonight because the story of the show is good. But, like, maybe the best things about the show aren't directly tied to the myth arc, so to say. Indeed. Um, lots of stuff on the fringes of the show. Really delightful. Maybe we can start just talking about the format of the show. So it's it's an all animated show. It's I would call it I've heard it called the Cal Arts style to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's not maybe the signature example of it, but think like Adventure Time, Steven Universe look of of characters, exaggerated faces. Yeah, it's like a circa 2010 style. A bunch of kids who came out of Cal Arts around the same time. And I've heard about that style referred to that way. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to go about it because animators have been coming out of CalArts for like a super long time. Like John Lasseter, I'm pretty sure was at CalArts. And, uh, you know, it's it's been Disney's, um, what do they call it when it's like a, a farm team? That when the low lower league is like exists to right. train players to go up to the majors. Um, it's kind of Disney's farm team. And uh, so now a lot of animated series on TV are sort of auteur projects from animators who come out of this program. And then they become executive producers and, and call the shots in these opuses that they make. And another important thing I think you referenced a minute ago is that this show is a good blend of monster of the week, let's say. So like whatever's happening for that one episode 
and then almost every episode, some more than others, give us some breadcrumbs in the larger story. You use the term myth arc, which is one I learned from you that I hadn't heard before. Right. So uh, by way of explaining what this show means to me, I did want to give a little more background. So one thing that this show owes a lot to is, well, Twin Peaks, for one, because it's about a small town in the Pacific Northwest where weird things happen. Uh, it borrows some very specific visual elements from Twin Peaks, like the the waterfall and the opening credits is similar to the one that is in the Twin Peaks opening. Uh, at one point, you know, we see the creepy dream sequence room show up. So it, it's clear that they, they owe a, a bit of homage to that show. Uh, but I also see a lot of The X-Files in it. The X-Files was a show that... Uh, when it was on originally, I was a little too young, but I got really into watching the reruns on Sci-Fi Channel when I was in high school, which was the first time I ever had cable. And Myth Arc and Monster of the Week, those are terms from the X-Files fandom. I would say that Gravity Falls manages the balance much better. Uh, X-Files, there are Monsters of the Week episodes that are completely divorced from the story arc and vice versa. And when you're watching them like aired out of order on cable, it just makes you hate the myth arc episodes because it's like, I don't know where this fits in and I, I'm lost about what's happening. And just go back to the kind of episode where there's a chupacabra. That's, <laughs> that's what I care about. Uh, but here in Gravity Falls, as Dan said, you get breadcrumbs in pretty much every episode. Things move forward. Yeah, I saw one website describe the show as The Simpsons mixed with Twin Peaks mixed with The X-Files. And I think it's clear that, what's the name of the guy? Alex Hirsch? Mm -hmm. the guy. So he's the, the creative force behind this. And I think we'll talk a little more about him and his background and how it relates to the show. But suffice it to say he definitely watched a lot of simpsons when he was a kid because there's a lot of humor and vocal style that really reminded me of simpsons i guess you can see that in basically any animated comedy i mean that's how pervasive the simpsons has been but yeah hey i can't uh, really say too much against the simpsons i'm a big simpsons fan too but this show came to my attention because it has some striking similarities with my own childhood experience. Because back in the day, I would spend the summers with my brother out in Washington State with our grandfather, who had a house out there. And one place that we would frequently visit is a tourist trap called Marsh's Free Museum, which is this little shack uh, on Long Beach, Washington, that's full of, like, taxidermy freaks. Like, Sasquatch heads made out of the rear end of deers, you know, fur-bearing trouts and Fiji mermaids, all these Barnum-style humbug attractions. And these types of places are pretty common across the Pacific Northwest, and if you get into a situation where you're visiting one, you start to see pamphlets for the others. Another place that we went a couple times that pops up in the opening of Gravity Falls is the Trees of Mystery, which is one of several 
attractions based around the California redwoods, which are giant trees. And this one in specific features a big, kind of cheesy Paul Bunyan statue. Well, I think the I think the attraction that is most closely mirrored by the Mystery Shack, the central tourist attraction in Gravity Falls, which we'll talk about here soon. I think the, the real world analog is called the Oregon Gravity Vortex. It's a place where they say uh, gravity goes backwards. Like if you stop your car in neutral on the side of the hill, you'll roll up the hill. And you know if your taller friend stands in the opposite corner of the room from you, suddenly they'll be shorter than you. And it's got anomalies, and it's weird, and you have interesting photo ops. That's definitely the, the vibe of the show. I mean, it's, it's all about this one town, Gravity Falls, like the title, that just has every single supernatural thing you could possibly imagine going on there. Like, literally think of a, a supernatural thing. It's either depicted or significantly referenced in this show. And so I grew up in this background of Pacific Northwest paranormal-themed tourist traps. And I heard that, lo and behold, there is a TV show out there about a pair of siblings who spend the summer with their grandfather at a paranormal tourist trap. So it's like, I have to see this because this was my story. Uh, the only way it could possibly be more my childhood depicted in a TV series would be if you swapped out the siblings from over the garden wall into Gravity Falls. That, then that would be my you. But uh, so I just wanted to let you know that going in because it's definitely going to color my judgment of the <laughs> series. So Dan is going to be providing the objectivity here, hopefully. I'll do my best. Yeah, I, I had positive things to say, a couple of critical things to say, but suffice it to say, I, I actually really like this show and I'm, I'm glad that you shared it with me and um, I enjoy I looked forward to watching it as I was watching it and it's definitely something I'm gonna gonna share with with other people and probably with my my daughters someday so thank you Brian for bringing this to me and seeing uh, your episode of Count Gauntly that you mentioned you visited some of those those touristy places it it heightened my appreciation of your personal connection to the show. So I wanted to cover a little bit about what the story entails, and then we can highlight some of the things that we like, as we usually do, uh, and just what adds to the flavor of the show and what, and what creates it. Sure. You think that yeah, we is can, a good way of going about it? That sounds good. We can talk, we can roughly outline the, the, the show and it's the major plot points, and then we can just kind of spitball, I think, yeah. Yeah. So the show follows a pair of siblings, as I said, uh, twin brother and sister, Dipper Pines and Mabel Pines. Mabel is voiced by long-running goods favorite Kristen Shaw, once described as the dark horse of the goods. Here, <laughs> not a dark horse by any means, very prominent. As prominent as in Bob's Burgers. And so those are her two, like, Huge roles. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to see her as Louise or if I'm going to see her as Mabel. Going. And they are spending the summer in Gravity Falls at the Mystery Shack, which is a supernatural-themed tourist attraction run by their great-uncle, 
Stan Pines, and they call him Grunkle Stan, uh, apparently uh, because as much as this show is autobiographical for me, it's obvious that it's very autobiographical for Alex Hirsch. And uh, apparently he and his sister Ariel stayed with their granty, which is a great aunt, uh, but the character of Stan is modeled after and named after his grandfather, which the, the relationship to me really seems grandfatherly. Definitely. He's very much grandfatherly. It's almost a relationship of like benign neglect, maybe not neglect, but like he's just kind of the old guy hanging around who occasionally barks orders, but it leaves Dipper and Mabel free to kind of go off on their own adventures while still helping out around the shack and seeing their, their grunkle stand and stuff. So it's, it's an interesting relationship for sure that gets fleshed out and explored as the series goes along. I taught you shelf reliance, as uh, as Sean Connery says. That's his uh, fathering style in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You gotta let them them grow up in the woods and fight monsters. <laughs> That'll uh, be a formative summer. I mean, that's actually a big thing in, in parenting. So I, I'm a dad of two girls. So I've read a lot of parenting stuff, and there is like a lot of talk of we need to let kids be a little more free and like let them roam around the neighborhood and say, just be back by dinner and things like that. It's, it's definitely the way things are trending. I don't know about battling gnomes and supernatural creatures in the forest and stuff, but you know, maybe inching towards that. And sure enough, the mystery shack that Stan runs does have a bunch of these taxidermy freaks. I noticed right in episode one, there's a Fiji mermaid in a glass case that looks exactly like Jake the Alligator Man at Marsh's Free Museum. So, you know, I'm sure that's a trope of the industry at large, but like, really, it, it seemed like we were simpatico. We were on the same wavelength. Pretty early on in the first episode, Dipper comes across this journal sealed inside a fake tree. And it's full of cryptic notes about mysterious stuff going on in the town. And it's by an anonymous author who's compiled all these supernatural findings. So right out of the gate, we get what's going to be the crux of our central arc story, which is, you know, unlocking the mysteries of the town, as they say many times, exploring the paranormal stuff and ideally identifying this author person who wrote it all down. Another thing the pilot sets up that is a major theme is that these Mabel and Dipper are both 12 years old. So they're knocking on the door of adolescence and not quite there. And so the pilot has basically Mabel thinks she has a boyfriend who is in fact a supernatural force. And it's a very clever twist. You think it's a zombie the whole time. But it turns out to be a bunch of gnomes in a coat, um, which is kind of referenced as a joke earlier. But the idea of all the quote unquote mysteries of the town colliding with the mysteries of young adolescence and like the mysteries of adulthood, when it gets those two things in wavelength, the show is very powerful and, and 
poignant way of letting the two kind of mirror each other, I would say. Yeah, this is jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but just prior to the finale of the show, we get kind of a promise of the premise episode called Roadside Attraction. And I think that could work as an alternate title for the show itself, (laughs) because there is a fair bit of romance in this show. There's also, obviously, roadside attractions. It's like a perfect title. (laughs) We should note at this point that Dipper and Mabel have different personalities. Dipper is very introverted and bookish. Mabel is more outgoing. And she's just kind of wacky. She's... Very expressive and very in touch with the colorful, shiny, happy things. Yes. Kristen Schaal very well cast in the role, I think. Agreed. Some other main characters include the people who work at the Mystery Shack. There's a handyman named Seuss who is voiced by Alex Hirsch, also voices um, Grunkle Stan and several other characters who are pretty prominent. Feel like when you're the boss, you can do stuff like that, like uh, uh, that Mike Richards guy making himself the host of Jeopardy. Although that didn't take. <laughs> I was really impressed. I don't think I would have guessed that. I would say there's the top three characters voiced by Alex Hirsch is a a villain who will come down the line, and then Grungle Stan and Seuss, and they're all three very different and distinct voice styles. I I really do not think I would have guessed that they were all the same voice actor. So even if it was a bit of, uh, I'm the boss, I do what I want, I voice half the cast, he does a good job making it not feel like it's just one dude modulating his voice. Definitely. And also prominent is the cashier of the Mystery Shack, a girl named Wendy Corduroy. She's like an outdoorsy lumberjill Tom girl type who Dipper immediately falls for, but she's several years older. I think she's 15, it's said, Mm -hmm. and he's 12. But she also is like two heads taller than him. Yeah. At one point, he has a fantasy where he's with her at like a ball. And not only is she wearing a dress, he's also taller than she is in the fantasy. And like... We never see her in a dress, the whole show. It's like, if you're into her for who she is, you're still like changing her up in this, in this dream sequence. So, uh, but more on that in a bit. Um, some prominent subplots we get. Uh, we, there is the, the Dipper, Wendy obsession thing. We also have a subplot where Mabel makes friends with some outcasts. Candy, who is voiced by Bimo from Adventure Time. It's uh, the actress's Nikki Yang, who, who played the, the robot, and kind of doing the same shtick here. That's one thing I really liked about this show, is there's just an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the voice cast. And people will pop in almost playing their character from another show. Because there's a, there's a couple episodes where there's a time traveler played by Justin Roiland, essentially just being Morty from Rick and Morty. Like, doing his, his stammering thing was like, oh! Oh, jeez, Rick. So there's a lot of that. Not to derail things too much, uh, but uh, Mabel's also got a rivalry going on with a mean girl stock character named uh, Pacifica Northwest. And um, she gets some crushes of her own that uh, form the the arc of an episode or two. 
Yeah, there's Monsters of the Week, and then there's Mabel's Crush of the Week. It's not every episode, but it's maybe one in four episodes. Yeah. Things break down pretty well into fours in this show. I think there's like 40 episodes. That's a little debatable. It seems like every 10 episodes, there's some big seminal thing that happens. One of Mabel's suitors whose affections she does not return is a guy named Gideon, who's a Texan who has a tourist attraction that is a rival to the mystery shack. As things unfold, we learn that he's got supernatural powers for real because he has another one of these journals. The, uh, the one that Dipper found has a three on it. Gideon's got one with a two on it. So we know that there are multiple of these books that contain the powerful secrets of the town. So at this point, we are left wondering how many of these are out there. And uh, Gideon's going to be the uh, secondary antagonist over the course of the show. Yeah, not to hop in with too much commentary here, but I will say that uh, I personally found Gideon just completely insufferable. He was probably the biggest overall negative element of the show for me. Because, like, the to me, the charm of the show is, like, it's this sleepy rustic little town with its own characters that are kind of exaggerated but realistic types varying levels of realism like there's dopey overweight cops and there's shop owners and there's the newspaper reporter and there's the crotchety old mayor and all these things there's the rich family in town and then you got like this dude who has the most annoying voice he's a acts like a baby, looks like a baby, and he's just whining all the time. He's introduced in probably my least favorite episode of the show, like very unpleasantly and awkwardly, constantly pining after Mabel. And uh, whenever I saw that he was in an episode, just like imagine the most exaggerated eye roll gif. That was me whenever I saw Gideon pop up on screen. Yeah, I mean, he's deliberately obnoxious, so I, I can't really argue with that. But I like some of the things in the episodes in which he appears. Uh, <laughs> one of the times he's trying to win Mabel over, he has this trained parrot. And it like has this long speech it has to deliver. and It doesn't get it right. And he's like hassling this poor parrot. <laughs> I, th I, I don't know. That part makes me laugh. No, there's some good stuff on the fringes for him. But uh, I guess, you know, there are ways to design villains who you can dislike but can also enjoy spending time with. And Gideon did not scratch that itch for me. That's fair. But he's he's important enough in the show that we got to mention him here in the discussion of the myth arc. <laughs> because towards the end of season one, the first 20 episodes, he uses the book to summon a demon named Bill Cipher, who's described as a mind demon. And this is the big bad of the show. And we've seen him foreshadowed multiple times. There's like a window in the house that has his shape because he is the Illuminati symbol, essentially. He's the pyramid with one eye. You know, he's like, he's the thing on the dollar bill. He is the cipher on the bill. Oh. He's got like a top hat though, doesn't he? Yeah, he's also got a top hat. 
And this is the third major character voiced by Alex Hirsch. I, I thought it sounded a lot like, um, I forget the Jason Lee, I think his name is, the guy who voices Syndrome in The Incredibles. Oh, I can kind of hear that. He's got kind of a similar approach to talking to protagonists. So right. Buddy-buddy, mocking yeah. dialect. This demon can go into people's minds and actually at this point that's the only way he can interact with people is the quote-unquote mindscape. He can like inception you. He can steal your secrets from inside your head. Because what Gideon wants is to take possession of the mystery shack. And at first it's like, oh, he just wants to corner the paranormal attraction racket in the area or something. But uh, to do this, he wants to take possession of the deed to the house. And so he's going to get the safe combination by inceptioning Stan. Send the demon into his head, get the numbers out, then uh, crack the safe, I suppose. Brian and I had a pretty in-depth conversation over... Uh, Facebook chat about how unrealistic this plot of the trying to steal the deed, like a piece of paper in a safe in a house was. I won't elaborate too much, except that that is not how home ownership works. It's not like if you hold the piece of paper, you own that house. And if somebody nabs it out of your hand, they are now the owner of the house. But it drives the plot forward, at least. Yeah, it's kind of presented as a Mr. Krabs and Plankton fighting over the secret formula thing. Sure. But the kids are able to rebuff this first mind invasion attempt by Bill. They, like, imagination fight him out of Stan's head. And so Gideon's got to turn to his own devices. He's actually got a giant robot. And so <laughs> in this, like, final episode of season one, we get a giant robot fight, and it's kind of a taste of the epicness to come. Things are going to grow in scope as we go. Definitely, yeah. And the, the giant robot is shaped like baby Gideon. Or little Gideon or whatever his name is. The little shit. But <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. We're sharing our feelings as <laughs> Tenderheart Bear taught us. Speaking of little shits. Yeah. Yep. And they are able to defeat little Gideon and from the wreckage of this robot, Gideon gets plucked out and sent off to prison. And Stan actually manages to take possession of the journal that he had. Because at this point, the Dipper says, hey, we've been following advice from this magic book uh, thus far this summer. And just thought you ought to know, Grandpa, essentially. <laughs> And in the final moment of season one, we find out not only does Stan have access to journals three and two now, he's actually had journal number one all along. And down in this sanctum underneath the mystery shack, he has like a giant space technology portal that he's building. And this moment, hypothetically at least, has more punch to it because... One thing about Crunkle Stan is he's the cynical skeptic whenever, you know, he's the purveyor of fake supernatural things, cryptids, weird taxidermy things that are very explicitly just pieces of other animals glued together. 
there's a lot of fun about how fake everything is in the, the mystery shack. And he's constantly, you know, putting down Dipper for thinking that there's something more magical going on in the town. But, you know, it turns out he's got one of the magic books himself. So obviously he's a believer. I will say, if you didn't guess that Stan was uh, pretty well aware of the supernatural leanings and had some things going on himself, you probably weren't watching the show too closely, but it, it was still a cool kind of moment to see those things come together. Yeah, in the very first episode, he goes behind a bookcase and is, you know, he's doing something down there. So. He's got the shifty eyes. There's a lot in this show calculated to make people wonder and try to figure out the mysteries. And it definitely would have been a different experience consuming it over like three and a half years compared to marathoning it on a streaming service. Uh, because there's like codes at the ends of the episodes, different kinds of clues and ciphers. And there's different times where there's backwards audio. And like, if you really really cared about this show like i consider myself to be a big fan but not to the point where i'm like dissecting audio clips but if those people were out there i i imagine that this was a rewarding program yeah, yeah probably rewarding and probably i don't know like the mythology itself isn't really deep enough to warrant that to some extent it does have a lot of mysteries and a lot of revelations but I guess what I'm saying is I'm glad that I did not have to suffer through that. I, I'm glad that I experienced it in the marathoning stage, the, the binge mode. Yeah, well, it's it's still good if you watch it. Oh, yeah, yeah. However definitely. you watch it. I mean, I think, honestly, it holds together really well as a show you watch over maybe not one week, but maybe a few weeks, maybe mm-hmm. a month, because it does span a single summer across the two seasons. So three and a half years would have been a bit much. But now we're into season two. The show changed channels. It went to Disney's slightly older aimed Disney XD. And I think some of the changes reflect that. For instance, both season premieres feature zombies, but this time it's real zombies. And they're like actually got eyeballs hanging out and stuff. Yeah, the the show leans into its supernatural elements in the second season quite a bit more and there's it it doesn't shy away from some like really almost gruesome creepy things that are appearing in this show i have a couple of specific episodes where there were moments that caught me off guard with how intense the creepiness weirdness goriness of it was if for just flashes at a time. Yeah, we get some... Uh, we, there's an episode with a monster clearly inspired by uh, John Carpenter's The Thing uh, that can take on different forms. And it's like bits of humans and animals and just all mashed together in a gory mess. Um, there's one where there's like a possession or something and uh, there's a bunch of taxidermy heads dripping blood. You know, lots of fun stuff. In the finale, there's a point where Bill yells, I have some children I need to make into corpses. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's pretty metal, Disney. Yeah, You the, went there. Well, we can talk certainly more about the finale when we get there, but the finale has a lot of things that stretch the limits of acceptable taste in children's television, I would say. But of course, we want to know now about what Stan's doing in the basement. 
What's he building in there? As Tom Waits says. And we're kind of teased. Breadcrumbs. Bit by bit, we're learning things. Um, Some of the reveals we get in this first act of season two, the characters are investing more time in trying to suss out the identity of the author. Uh, In my notes, capital A, author. They're always talking about the author. Who is the author? And uh, one of the candidates that comes up is a character named Old Man McGucket, Alex Hirsch character number four, uh, who up to this point has just been the crazy hillbilly who's always running around yelling rustic nonsense. Yeah, the character type I'm partial to, I have to say, Um, but he's the epitome of comic relief, although we do get flashes of his depth in the second episode of the show. We see that he's actually a crazy inventor. He's like built a robot serpent machine, but it's all kind of played off for yucks. Um, and then lo and behold, the show has prepared for him a whole backstory. Yeah, because it turns out that he himself is not the author, but he was the author's lab assistant. And he can't tell them any more than that because he had his brain addled by a memory ray gizmo that they find. And so kind of Ice King style, he's gradually lost his mind over the years and just has these these memories that they're able to dig up in like secret society files. One thing I liked, uh, a sign of the growing epicness in season two is that FBI agents show up and start poking around and the head agent is voiced by Nick Offerman. So now Ron Swanson is here. <laughs> Real Mill Gray. <laughs> now and forever. Yeah, I, I, it's just impossible for me to hear anything other than Ron Swanson coming out of any character that has Ron Swanson's voice. But they, they show up. Honestly, it's only for like four episodes. They're introduced in the season two premiere. I thought they were going to be a, a constant presence. And this is another Twin Peaks reference to me. It's not exactly the same because they're like investigating paranormal things. Whereas in Twin Peaks, Kyle, what's his name? Uh, Agent Cooper is the is the character, and I think it's Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, is the um, actor. He is a constant presence in Twin Peaks, and uh, he's there obviously investigating a murder. But having the feds show up, and that's when you know things have gotten real in this town that's more than meets the eye that's very much a twin peaks thing right and x-files obviously they're also fbi agents and even though that show takes place all over the country it's filmed mostly in british columbia just north of washington state and it looks it there's pine trees everywhere Mulder and scully go even though they're like (laughs) you know supposed to be other places eventually we learn about the portal and its nature in this absolute exposition blitz. Uh, There's like a two episode stretch where it's just finding out what the portal's about uh, because the the agents finally corner Stan and they reveal that he's been living under a fake identity. He's been like going from place to place, assuming new names. And is he really their Grunkle Stan? But he's able to elude the agents long enough to witness the 
fully operational stage of the portal as it powers up and opens. And the twins have a moment where they're able to stop the opening of the portal should they decide to, but they ultimately decide to trust Stan, whoever he is, and let this happen, let it open up. And who should emerge but the author, capital A, the six-fingered man who left his imprint on the cover of the journals. Through a, a long explanation, this turns out to be Stan's twin brother. Right, so we did not know that there was another Grunkle. And I think this is makes more sense why it's Grunkle and not Grandpa, because you can have two Grunkles, but you can't have two Grandpas. Confusingly, they are both named Stan. This is so dumb. This is my least favorite thing about the show, and I have a strong theory why it is this way. But yes, so for the whole show, Grunkle Stan has said that his name is Stanford Pines. Stanford, Stanford, and Gideon calls him Stanford. That's, that's what he goes by. It turns out, no. He assumed his brother's identity when he came to the town and accidentally trapped his brother in this portal. Really, his brother is the smart guy. His brother is the researcher. His brother is Mr. Mystery. But uh, Stan came to the town, accidentally trapped... Sorry, see, this is... It's so confusing. The, the guy we've come to know came to the town years ago, 30 years ago, accidentally trapped his brother, the researcher, inside the portal, Jumanji style, and uh, has been working ever since trying to get him back out. But he couldn't because the journals had already been hidden away. This guy's name, apparently, is actually Stan Lee. Stanley, which I think if you met a Stan in real life, you would assume his name is Stanley. <laughs> yeah. But... I think the reason they did this, have his real name be Stanley, is so that fans could continue calling him Stan and not have that be wrong. Oh, totally. But 100%. It's, it's like an Armin Tanzarian thing. It's like, <laughs> you know, we want to still call him C we we want to still call him Seymour Skinner. Right. Uh, even once we know that's an an alias. But it's just annoying. It's like give him a different name. It makes it difficult to discuss the as you mentioned, slightly convoluted backstory, but they get to call Stanford, which is what they thought their Grunkle Stan's really real name was, but turns out to be the author who appears. They get to call him Grunkle Ford. Right. So we have Grunkle Stan and Grunkle Ford. And this new character that we're going to get to know in the final 10 episodes of the show is played by J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons is here. I don't think we've talked about too much on the actual show that we've recorded, but he's very much been a presence on the yeah. periphery because we've, we've mentioned multiple roles that we like him in and how he tends to pop up in movies. Yeah, he elevates everything he's in. So we've done two theme months. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but one uh, idea for a theme month we have for theme month three. We got a few working candidates, but... Uh, one is J.K. Simmons month, where here's J.K. Simmons in a, a movie, and you could have four or five or six or whatever, totally different things, and 
you mentioned this could have been a quote backdoor pilot to J.K. Simmons month. I don't think we're going to go that route, but yeah, no, I, I'm a big J.K. Simmons fan. Yeah, it, not not exactly a theme per se, but we <laughs> we would like to explore his oeuvre more in the months ahead. Indeed, the dynamic he adds is he's the nerdier sibling, like Dipper is to Mabel. So the the parallel between Mabel and Stan is is not as strong other than they are the more extroverted sibling. Yeah, but they're twins, is that right? And Stan yes. and Stan? Yes. Yeah, the two Stans are twins as well. I think both sets are fraternal, although they definitely look alike. Right, yeah. I kind of wish they had introduced this. I I have like four suggested rewrites of the show. One is introduce Grunkle Stanford earlier, maybe Mm -hmm. at the start of season two. I don't know, because the show gets a lot of richness out of having two sets of twins and the way they bond and the interesting things it reveals about the different characters. And in particular, Dipper and Grunkle Ford the author who appears halfway through season two have a lot of bonding and a lot of things in common. And some of their shared experiences ultimately kick off the finale of the show. Right. Because when we get this backstory of the two stands, which is the title of, of the episode, they were once very close as kids. And then as their personalities developed and diverged, they grew apart Uh, specifically because Ford was really smart and excelling academically, and Stanley was starting to become afraid that he was going to get left behind in the dust. It does a good job of introducing these characters and their backstory to make us A, C. So there's there's an episode, I think it's called The Two Stands. I think it's the kickoff of the, the back half of season two, or maybe one episode after that. And by the way, shout out to my little brother, Will. I was just talking to him today. He thinks that this stretch, he had a specific episode. I'm not clear which of the specific episodes he's talking about, but is one of the peaks of, he says, of all American animation. And he's, he's watched a lot, so that's high praise. But he, this is his favorite stretch of the show when we get to meet Uncle Ford for the first time and it reminded me a little bit of um, in Harry Potter, there's a famous chapter in the seventh book called The Prince's Tale, where we basically see, in that case, it's Snape, but we basically see him through the years. And here it's the two stands. We see Grunkle Stan, as we know him, and then Grunkle Ford and their whole kind of life story and what ultimately drove them apart. And we kind of see it in snapshots, uh, like little episodes from various points in their life and it is as i mentioned very intriguing because we always have we already have a set of siblings that have some similar dynamics and to see them kind of fall out of not love but fall fall out of a relationship and, and caring for each other over time adds a darker shade yeah to Dipper and Mabel. It plants the seed that the same thing could happen to Dipper and Mabel. Indeed, yeah. My favorite thing about this episode that's showing the two brothers' childhood and growing up 
is uh, we see a little bit, a couple short moments of Stan's father. And we'd seen him once before in a flashback, but he didn't say anything. And when I saw this character just in his first silent appearance, I thought, now the actor I would cast to play this guy is Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike on Breaking Bad, who's the old hitman. He's just a crotchety old badass. And then <laughs> the next time he appears in the show is in this flashback. And Stan is kind of narrating and he says, my father wasn't easily impressed. And it cuts to that character. He says, oh, I'm not impressed. And it's Jonathan Banks. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Simpatico. Same wavelength as this show. They got him. Fantastic. Yeah. But we've got this handful of final episodes where we are finally seeing Ford in the mix, kind of dancing around this issue that the siblings could grow apart. And there is a final aspect of danger because Bill is still out there. And Ford has apparently spent the last 30 years Jumanjied, as I said, living life, I guess, on the other side of this veil in the dimension where Bill exists. Uh, so, so What year is it? Yeah, exactly. Something I noticed this watch through that I hadn't before, I haven't mentioned yet, but this was my fifth time watching the show. And we should point out, second in the past three months, when Brian assigned it, I guess you got the jump on watching it in June. Yeah, I watched it a little more spread out where I watched it over the course of June. And then I watched it again as Dan was watching it this past week. But in this most recent watch through, what was different is I had seen recently Invincible on Amazon Prime where, uh, not to spoil that show too much, but uh, J.K. Simmons plays an evil Superman, essentially. Uh, something which is gradually revealed that uh, we find out he's bad in like the first episode, but the other characters don't know that and gradually become aware of it. I say that because uh, this time around, I noticed there are kind of some hints dropped that, you know, Stan may have been, sorry, Ford may have been influenced and uh, have things he's doing that he's not saying, perhaps uh, fighting in favor of Bill at this, at this time. We don't really know. We don't know what his whole deal is because he's kind of just appeared out of nowhere. Yeah, I like this element and I detected a little bit of this as well. I like it when stories do something where they make you question whether the good guy through their means of trying to be good has in fact gone maybe a little too far and maybe soured in different ways. I mean, Harry Potter certainly does this with Dumbledore and even with Harry a little bit throughout the series. And I think it's always a, an element of a story where you need to have a quote-unquote hero who's not strictly heroic, is questionably heroic in at least one way or, or more ways beyond that. But what we ultimately find out is that Ford did work with Bill in the past when he was trying to comprehend the supernatural as a whole. They kind of had a partnership where Bill would come into his mind and open up his senses and they would smoke peyote together and, you know, 
just vibe. It's funny. Uh, this is jumping the gun a little bit. Um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, the Dumbledore Grindelwald relationship. Definitely, they're, they're like discovering the bounds of what can be done together, and there's like almost quasi affectionate vibes between them. And um, one thing I want to talk a little bit about, I did just five minutes of research on what are the most popular ships in Gravity Falls. Okay, so well. yeah, you don't want to go down that well because I'm sure number one is Dipper slash Mabel. It actually is not. Okay. But uh, well, Dipsifica is, is important. Uh, um, but what what was <laughs> what were you going for there? Um, Bill and. Uh, Uncle Ford, Grunkle Ford. Really? Grunkle Ford. Really? I mean, maybe, uh, ship is maybe not the right word, but like romantic vibes between them. You okay. can see why they're drawn to each other at least. Okay. That's fair, I guess. Yeah, you're not going to guess. I'll, I guess I'll just spoil it now. Do you know what the most popular ship is? I read about this. I didn't even believe it, but apparently. Oh, so wait, most popular was not. It's uh, not. Was no. not the one you were so just. So that one about. is called Pinecest. It makes sense because their last name is Pines. Right. No, I know about Pinecest. I okay. do. But I thought you were saying number one was um Ford and. No. So Bill. The number one is, and I didn't even believe this is apparently Dipper and Bill. There's okay, like, I have. I've seen that too. Yeah. Bill Dip is what it's called. Okay. I don't know what the basis is of that one. Like I don't really see them connecting very much during this show but <laughs> so um something that is gonna be difficult to explain here but a long time ago dan and i recorded a podcast discussing um the legend of Korra, the sequel series to uh, avatar the last airbender and at the end of that he was talking about um the final scene of legend of Korra, where we get a romantic connection between Korra and Asami, the uh, other prominent female character. And uh, I said it was kind of a mic drop moment that they just end things with a, a queer romance and then they don't have to deal with the fallout of that. It's just like, yeah, it's happening. Bye, guys. Um, but then Dan said, you know, I saw an extended version of that scene where they uh, where they do kiss at the end. <laughs> Did you see that stuff? <laughs> and I said, yeah, Dan, I've seen that stuff. Oh. And so now anytime uh, <laughs> ships are involved or uh, things trending that way in fan communities online, I, I always think in my head, so you seen that stuff? <laughs> so, um, yeah, Pine Cyst. Uh, uh, you seen that stuff? Maybe we shouldn't go down that route. <laughs> there's, okay. some, there's some stuff. But let's just pause for a moment. Did you know that it is a observed fact that one in four brother-sister relationships that are within two years of each other do some romantic experimenting with each other at some point? Oh my god. No, I, I don't know what you're sourcing there. <laughs> hey, it's something I read on the internet one time. Okay. Well, all I'm going to say is there were like a small... I respect that the show really took that relationship very seriously and I can't possibly personally know what it's like to have a twin who's the opposite gender when both of you are cis and straight and just spending all your time together but there was like four or five moments throughout the series where I was like 
that's a weird vibe I'm getting right now from this show between these two characters. And so I guess all I'm saying is like, given the number of weird people there are in the internet, I wasn't even a fraction amount surprised that there were people who were reading into that. Interesting. And that's all that I'll say on that. Okay. I don't, I don't subscribe to that myself, but I was not surprised that some people had subscribed to that. That's fair. While we're in this quagmire, I'll say, um, I, I do like the uh, storyline with Wendy. I think that's got some oomph to it. I completely agree. I can relate to... Uh, I like that you said pining. That's a good word that I've not thought of in connection to this show because their name is Pines. Oh, that's good. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah him pining after her and, and that not being something that can work out. Uh, although, you know, there are episodes here involving time travel and uh, I, I like the time episodes. One of the one of the biggest um, Dipper Wendy episodes involves a time loop, basically, and uh, since we devoted an entire month to that concept, we may have some more to say about that one. It's one of the best episodes, in yeah. short, for yeah. sure. And like how you know, trying to maximize the dialogue tree, as as I've said before, and just get get the best rep that you can. Although I, I personally go for Dipsifica. Uh, after the Wendy thing doesn't work out, there is an episode where uh, Dipper is suddenly celebrated by the town as a ghost hunter, and he gets invited to rid the rich family's mansion of ghosts. And uh, I, I liked that suddenly everybody seemed to have turned around on Dipper, like not being a weirdo. They're like, oh, we have a ghost? This is the guy we want. Uh, and it's like uh, Titanic, you know, they, they give him the they give him the tuxedo to wear and um, she's kind of held up as being uh, an alternate love interest just for just for a, a snippet before we dive into the, the, the home stretch of episodes. Yeah, I, in general, I like this character, the, the North. What's her name? Pacifica Northwest. Yeah. Um, and I, I, that was one of my favorite episodes, too, the one where. She and Dipper get to spend a lot of time together. And, and we'll, we'll spitball a couple other favorites, highlights, lowlights, as far as the individual episodes go. But let's wrap up this yeah. story here, because we are close to the end. Because one of the things that Ford says when he reveals that he did spend this intimate brain-sharing time with the Dream Demon was that he knows Bill's ultimate goal and what uh, finally turned him off of this relationship was Bill wants to tear through into the human dimension and Lovecraft it up, just wash everything in a tidal wave of madness and make everything quote-unquote weird. <laughs> and Ford has disassembled the portal to stop this from happening, but there is still this uh, this uncertainty wave, this uncollapsed bit of rift that could tear through at any moment if perturbed, and he has to protect it and stop that from happening. Yeah, and I, I really like where the show goes with this. It it leans into the quote-unquote weird. In your Gonley episode where you visited all these places, you talked about the fad of keep Portland weird. I almost wish I had watched your Gauntlet episode before I watched Gravity Falls because the notion of weird is really brought to its intensive extreme. 
right. in, in Gravity Falls. Right, because something Ford does to kind of safeguard the rift, he invites Dipper to be his monster hunting apprentice. And of course, there's nothing Dipper wants more than to essentially be the next author. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a monster hunter's apprentice? And like, he's making this offer as they're like discovering alien technology underground and stuff. Or I don't know, maybe that's not the same episode, but it's definitely Ford is kind of opening up the, hey, you're kind of a curious geek. You also can be a badass while you're a curious geek doors in Dipper's life. Right. And so now here is the job offer that Dipper has been waiting for. Stay with me in Gravity Falls and just fight the monsters full time. And I'm a super genius, so you don't even have to go to school anymore. Just being around me will make you smart and your parents will be happy and you'll get to do what you want all the time. But this would mean not going back home and not growing up with Mabel. This is also when I found out that they are just traveling from California <laughs> to Oregon, bordering states. Granted, California is very large, and uh, like Alex Hirsch, um, Dipper is a Southern California Hollywood boy, I guess. He's from uh, the town of Piedmont, which is where uh, Alex Hirsch was from. I don't know if we knew that until... Towards the end of I the I don't show. think we did because I assumed they were from further away, which is my bias show because <laughs> I would go from Virginia to the Pacific Northwest, which is further. But anyway, that the thought that they're going to have to grow up apart jolts Mabel out of her typical happy-go-lucky mood. And so she is fretful all of a sudden. Uh, and this is when she runs into a disguised Bill in the woods. He's in the guise of the time traveler that we've met a couple times. And he says, hey, I know a way that you could just have it be summer forever and nothing ever has to change. And he weasels the rift away from her and is able to smash it and rip apart the dimensions and kickstart a four or five episode arc it's three or four. Three or four. Well, if you count the one that bleeds into it to start yeah. with, it's like this tail end of the show right. that is just unapologetically epic and weird. Yeah. And it even has a great name, Weird Mageddon, which it earns. It's both Armageddon and just very, very weird. Yeah. Just everything is coming to life and growing orifices and faces and tongues and wings. One thing I really liked is the opening theme and the, the intro had been a kind of constant throughout the whole show. I think there's actually two versions of it. There's the long version and the short version, but it's, it's like this kind of whistled theme song that's, I think you mentioned that already. It's like a little bit X-Files, a little bit Twin Peaks, Catchy. It shows Dipper and Mabel doing various things. We meet a couple other characters in it. But it has like a warped version of that where Bill is taking Dipper's place and it like does a minor key shift. Yeah, it's like the, the waterfall tune. has turned to blood and it's flowing up instead of down. And just like makes it really creepy. And yeah, they definitely leaned into like very much setting the tone that this is not the show operating in its normal mode. It is 
Epic finale time. Right. And so now Bill is able to pass through the portal. He takes on a physical body, Voldemort style. And this is when he's going to get to hold court over this twisted version of the town. Uh, he, he creates a home for himself called the Pyramid, which I kind of like. Lots of good puns in this show. Yeah, Na- good names of things. And uh, he's got these flying eyeballs that are going around turning everybody to stone and just inflicting suffering. And Oh, and what did the minions call it? There's a... Henchmaniacs? That's what it is, the Henchmaniacs. Yeah, so he's got these, like, goblins and demons that he brings in with him that are his friends, and they're just scary chaos monsters. There's, like, a guy with eight balls for eyes and a set of chattering teeth, and there's, like, a inside-out Rubik's Cube thing and just uh, something that's, like, a, a gray loaf of bread with arms. It, it, it's forces of weirdness. So now everything's just an insane wasteland that Dipper and Wendy and Seuss are wandering across. And they have to um, try to get Mabel back because she was at ground zero of this tidal wave of insanity and is now being held captive in a bubble in the the middle of the waste. And uh, Gideon is the jailer responsible for this bubble. Once they finally get over there, passing through all this insanity. Oh, by the way, um, Louis C.K. played one of these demons uh, on initial airing. He really? was the crawling arm with a face that, like, eats people. <laughs> oh, and he, he keeps demanding that people get in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, hey, you, you should really think about getting in here. Come on and you'll love it in my mouth. Uh, and uh, you can still watch this clip on YouTube, but they once uh, the scandals involving Louis C.K. came out, Alex Hirsch redubbed his lines, but it's out there. I, I got to go find that. Because, I, uh, I mean, he was clearly improvising, too, so it's, it's weird seeing improvised lines dubbed over. Yeah. Parks and Rec, Louis C.K. also appeared and had improvised a significant portion of his lines as a kind of shy cop and uh man i wish i could have seen louis ck being that because that is one of the i was laughing whenever this hand face it's really scary but then (laughs) the stuff it's saying is also funny yeah it's like kind of dry humor and that actually totally clicks now that you're saying that but they finally get to the bubble and dipper pulls gideon aside and says hey man you can't force somebody to love you which you know, it's kind of a poignant culmination of of the the romance thing with Wendy. Although I will say, there's a love potion episode, and they they don't get into the squickiness of of love potions. That is is not how it's used. It's it's love potion used for good for matchmaking. Yeah, it's like people make, who need matchmaking. Right. It's like the the people who nobody loves make them love each other, and there you go. Instead of, I have been obsessing over this. 15-year-old for the past. For us, it's a season, but for him, it's a month. But anyways, yeah, I'm glad it didn't go down that route. True. Um, anyhow, uh, Gideon lets them into the bubble, and we get a really interesting episode where we find that this is not exactly a prison. Uh, it's like an alternate dimension set up to Mabel's whims. 
It's a it's Mabel's fantasy world, and describe what we see in this bubble. Sure. So you know, on the outside of this finale, this weird Mageddon, everything had been like morbid weird. Like there's a moment that really stuck out to me when somebody comes up to Bill. I think it's uh, Wendy's dad, the lumberjack, and is like gonna fight against him. And he's like, huh. Now your face orifices are mixed up and like now his mouth is an eye and his eyes are ears and it's just really freaking messed up. And like imagine bizarre mashed with apocalyptic mashed with just insane whatever is on the tip of your imagination. And then you cut to this dome and it's everything that Mabel had been pictured as this far. It's rainbows. There's been a lot of like crushes and fake imaginary boyfriends throughout the show. They're all there. There's like unicorns and bright colors and just Lisa Frank. Is that what the name is? The the stuff that was big in the nineties that was all bright. It's like Lisa Frank personified, but also it grants your wishes and your whims and it kind of knows what you want and comes brings it to you. So everybody goes in and then everybody except Dipper gets distracted by whatever thing that this, it's essentially the matrix. Like imagine the version of the matrix where you get plugged in in exactly the reality that you would want. And those Well, things... I mean, sort of the matrix, it's kind of like the illusion is the lame reality. It's like what we're all experiencing is what's pulled over, pulled over everybody's eyes. It's like, why would we want that? But <laughs> what I specifically think of is, um, there's a storyline in Batman beyond where like one of Terry's friends gets addicted to living inside this like pleasure pod at the arcade. And I would definitely live in one of these things. It's like, yeah, sign me up, plug me in, use me as a battery if you have to, but I want in. Something Mabel is into that I think really shows that this show is autobiographical for Alex Hirsch is a lot of the things Mabel likes is like 80s pop culture, which doesn't really line up with it being set in the present. I mean, they they do have like email addresses and stuff, but it's it's clear that a lot of the references in this show are tied to the 80s and like Mabel's dream boys that we see grow gradually more physical in form. Uh, like, you know, they, they appear in the mindscape at first and then as things get weird, they like start to exist in reality. Uh, but they are animated in this alternate like He-Man style uh, or like uh, Gem and the Holograms. Definitely, or or um, Thundercats. Uh, they they look taken out of an '80s cartoon. Uh, and there's also a Care Bear in Mabel's uh, world driving a bubble car or a cloud car. I didn't uh, catch the Care Bear. So there, it's it's interesting. It's a mix, and there's like pop music playing. But I guess the argument that Dipper makes is that reality with its up and ups and downs is better than a fake thing where your every whim is granted and it's not real. But like the way we experience the world is strictly sensory. So if it's controlling every one of your senses, how is it any more or less real than quote unquote reality? It's, it's interesting. It raises some compelling arguments. And like when Dipper points out that the fantasy stuff isn't real, it like dissolves into bugs and it's, it's very shocking and 
it makes you feel some things. I take it this was a highlight for you. Oh, yeah. I, I really liked this episode. And it, it, it kind of stands on its own apart from the rest of the chaos. I mean, like they pause and everything slows down for us to have this. I, I feel like they were trying to say something. Yeah, one thing I really liked about the finale and, and just the show in general is the blend of the personal relationships and the things it tells us about the characters with the supernatural stuff. And I think this second part of the finale really focuses on the Dipper-Mabel relationship and just very much on Mabel. I mean, Dipper is, I think, slightly more main protagonist than Mabel. And it's good to have a Mabel-centric episode that takes her seriously and her concerns, but like uses it against this backdrop of everything being weird, but also like the weirdness of, I don't know. I took weird Mageddon to basically be not exactly, but almost a metaphor for like the onset of puberty and like everything about life becoming weird. It's obviously more than that because you have like the absolute surreal stuff happening, but like that being a thing that comes between a, boy and girl sibling matches it fits for me definitely yeah i it's not coincidence that i mean it, it's about the end of summer it's about the end of preteen years literally the last day of summer is their 13th birthday when they become teenagers right and that's all when this is going down and i mean i think that it it tracks with like pretty much all of folklore i mean like Adolescence is when the weird stuff happens. Uh, we're definitely going to queue up the 13th year at some point, the best movie ever made about merman puberty. Um, but I mean, even if you look at stuff like Little Red Riding Hood, it's like adolescence is when you go into the woods and there's wolves out there. But now the bubble is burst and it's time for the showdown with Bill and Dipper and Mabel and Wendy and Seuss make their way back to the shack, which, as it turns out, has been bill-proofed because Ford cast some spells a couple episodes back. And so we have this group of holdout characters that's very random, but it's like one-off characters we've seen from all throughout the show. So it's kind of like the trial at the end of Seinfeld, where everybody shows up again, everybody that we've seen just once throughout all the seasons, uh, to testify at a, at a trial in Seinfeld. But here they are all shown up for the battle. Yeah, if, if Weird Mageddon, broken into its parts, each exemplifies a trait of the show. The first one is the supernatural weirdness. The second one is the Mabel-Dipper relationship, particularly from Mabel's perspective. But this third one leans into the extended cast of Gravity Falls, Oregon, the city, and like the secondary and tertiary and quaternary characters that we get glimpses of, but now are kind of a part of this larger story, even tangentially. And I'll say that shows that establish a thriving community of support characters tend to rate highly in my book. So this is where I probably see the biggest connection to The Simpsons in just the sense that you can, like, if you wanted to have an episode about the sea captain or, or about Dr. Nick, and uh, Gravity Falls doesn't quite get there because, of course, it didn't run for 31 seasons, but uh, there are 
a lot of um, support characters. You mentioned the lumberjack. There's like a reporter on the news and a reporter who wants to be on the news. There's the dopey sheriff and his dopier deputy. Uh, there's the crazy old man. It's a lot of people. The thing that made me think of more than Simpsons was Parks and Rec, where Parks and Rec has these personalities appear first as one-offs and then kind of recurring bits, and you learn they're more interconnected than you initially realized and grow some affection for them, but also they're still like kind of off to the side for the majority of the run, but you know that the show is caring about them and they're not forgotten. Another one I think of is Arthur. Shout out to Arthur. <laughs> On your small screen 66, your countdown of your 66 favorite shows. Oh, yeah, it's on there somewhere. But, uh, I mean, you know, you could have a story about uh, Lunch Lady McGrady or uh, Principal Haney if you wanted to. <laughs> but these holdouts at the shack, uh, they follow Old Man McGucket's instructions because he's the robotics expert. And they turn the bill-proof shack itself into a war machine. And so now we get a big, giant robot fight against Bill again. Uh, and it's just pulling in all kinds of threads from all throughout the show. Like, at one point there were dinosaurs involved, and a dinosaur gets built into the construction of this thing. There's a, a boy band episode, and the boy band is, like, running a big hamster wheel that powers part of the robot. And it's just so, so much going on. Yeah. But uh, so they engage in battle with Bill and it, they're dominating for a while because he can't do anything to them. But he eventually figures out that if he uses, I think, like a physical weapon that can go through the weirdness barrier. Like if it's not some extra dimensional thing, he can hit him with it and it'll do damage. And so they get in a place where now they're at Bill's mercy and they hit on a new plan um, because there appears to also be a weirdness barrier over the town, I guess. And so while the monsters can hold court there, they can't take over the world at large, which obviously is what Bill wants to do in the end. Uh, so we joked in the Power Rangers episode how Rita Repulsa in the TV show is always like, today, Angel Grove and tomorrow, the world. Like, it's kind of an unrealistic expansion beyond one little neighborhood, one little town. But I liked how this really centered it around Gravity Falls, and particularly the Mystery Shack becoming the one of the forces of good and being mechanized and brought to life was just a cool and badass way to, like, I don't know, bring it to life. I, I like it yeah. when shows do things, and shows and movies, like, the one that I always reference is... Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide in the finale it literally culminates with tearing down the set that was the school and bringing like the the, the physical space into the culmination of the story itself I, I love that's always a, a victory for me yeah I, I would also shout out to the clock tower in the Back to the Future movies as being you know it doesn't quite get there where it's a character per se, but it's just a very prominent um, building that is involved throughout the timeline. Right. But Ford comes up with an idea that uh, 
apparently in his research, he's found a way to, you know, he can make the barriers. He also knows how to breach them. So he invites Bill into his mind, uh, saying, you want to know how to, you know, collapse, collapse the waveform again and, and get out and take over the world? Well, I have the secret and you got to come in here and get it. And somehow, I don't know exactly how they do this, but they do a quick change maneuver because remember that Grunkle Stan and Grunkle Ford are twins. They do bear a resemblance to each other. But somehow in this, in this moment where they've invited Bill in, Stan puts on Ford's clothes and Bill jumps into what he thinks is Ford's mind, but turns out to be Stan's. Stan obviously doesn't have the secret that Bill needs in his head. And so Ford trains the memory erase ray onto Grunkle Stan and blasts his mind away, taking Bill with it. And that kind of kicks off the emotional resolution where briefly Stan has no memory. Before we get to that, though, I got to tell a story on this. So if you look up Gravity Falls on Wikipedia, it's got 40 episodes. Okay, there is the finale is Weird Mageddon Part 3. As I understand it, I haven't looked this up myself. On Hulu, it shows up as 40 episodes. Last episode is Weird Mageddon Part 3. So here I am watching on Disney+. Plus. I'm on Weird Mageddon Part 3. When there's like five minutes to go, they're coming up with this plan to defeat Bill. And I'm like, man, that doesn't leave that much time for closure. But I guess they're going to defeat him in the next one or two minutes. And then there'll be three minutes of closure or whatever. And... And then what happens is they have this plan to defeat him. And and Brian kind of glazed over this. That's fine because it ends up being not all that consequential. But uh, it's this thing where they got to like hold hands and do this magic spell that will like destroy Bill. But Grunkle Stan and Grunkle Ford start feuding and the spell completely fizzles and the episode ends. I was like, what? That was the last episode. How is this over? And then it turns out there's actually no of Disney Plus. There's a weird beginning part four. I did not know that there was an additional episode. I was like, count down the minutes to the finale. I was like, how are they going to fit all this in? And then boom, there was 20 extra minutes. And I was like, is this like a top secret thing? Like, what, are we not supposed to know there's a weird Mageddon part four? It's like a, they only advertise that there's three, but there's actually four. Now it just turns out it actually aired as a double episode, but Disney split it up and made it a part four. But that for me was like an unintentional, I didn't do my research bam, slap you in the face plot twist because I had even timed when I was going to watch the end of the episode down to like when my bedtime was and then it hit it and there was no conclusion, no finale. And I was like, it's not done. It's I can't believe it's not done. And so that was last night. And then I woke up this morning extra early and watched Weird McGettin part four as it is on Disney+. Plus. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm almost upset that you brought that up because that was going to be one of my few bad things was this setup that they do of this uh the way that they're originally planning to seal bill away because one of the breadcrumbs for people to mull over who who were watching week to week instead of all at once um a couple times when we see bill depicted in the journals he's surrounded by this like zodiac diagram uh 10 different symbols that are around him and uh what we find out is Apparently this like circle that can send Bill away is 10 people joining hands who represent these different icons. 
And, and so just 10 of the prominent characters in the show are apparently these avatars of these different, I don't know, mindsets, uh, personality types. It's, it's dumb. I didn't like it that like characters who were important because they did things in the story that like were meaningful are, are bound together by cosmic forces to do this summoning circle. I didn't think that was earned. That, that felt weird to me. And then the symbols are like a llama that represented Pacifica because it happened to be on her shirt in that moment, even though she had nothing to do with llamas the whole rest of the show. Wendy is represented as a bag of ice because she's cool like ice, but that's not an ancient symbol. How long have they been bagging ice? I it was weird to me. I di I didn't like this. So and then it ends up not doing anything. Yeah, it doesn't even work. I see where you're coming from on that. That the reason it worked for me is I took it as one of those prophecies in fantasy stories where even though it's like an ancient prophecy, it really is like a self-fulfilling prophecy where like these people come together and they have this power. And it's not like necessarily that Wendy is descended from the great line of the bag of ice people or whatever, but it just so happened in that one moment, if those 10 people had been together because they would have summoned the sufficient power I feel like those types of prophecies that like accidentally or arbitrarily fulfill themselves is kind of like a trope of fantasy. It didn't bother me too much, but I, I do see what you're saying. And I guess maybe to your point, the fact that it ended up not working is it may have felt a little cheap or something like that. I, I, I guess so. Um, but ultimately, that's not how it, they do it. They do it with the, the memory yeah. wiping ray thing. Yeah. Um, and we get a tease of sort of like a One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest ending where the savior character has now been lobotomized. He's, he's lost his mind and his personality, but it doesn't stick. He, they are able to um, kind of bring, bring, bring him back yeah. from the brink. Grunkle Stan briefly has no memory of Mabel and Dipper, but Mabel pulls out the scrapbook she's been building throughout the series and it brings back memories for... Uncle Stan and he recovers and we get sent off to our grand farewell. Yeah, we get like a 10 minute bit where we're just get a, a sprinkling of all these multiple happy endings for all the different supporting characters. And it it feels really rewarding. It does, yeah. Like it's like what you would want to happen happens. Because uh, Dipper and Mabel do get their 13th birthday party. And because it's the return of normalcy for the town, like everybody gets in on it. Yeah. And it sometimes bugs me when shows get too happily ever after self-congratulatory. We are all happy and hugging. This one kind of worked because it was like one magic summer and everyone came together and like, the show really did set up this epic scope accomplishment that was truly achieved by everybody working together and bonding. And so it never got into the territory where I was rolling my eyes at how self-congratulatory it was, which many, many happy endings be in that realm. I thought this ending worked like phenomenally. I thought it was a fantastic finale overall. It just really paid off on everything that the show does well, I thought. Yeah, like 
in some sense, I would want a Gravity Falls season three because there's obviously more monsters that you could make monsters of the week about, but you could never wrap it up as well as they did in two seasons. They they perfectly capped all their arcs uh, in a satisfying way. It would be like if they ever tried to make a Toy Story 4, for example. <laughs> but luckily they would never do that. <laughs> I, I actually don't hate to Toy Story 4. No, it's just, it was just unnecessary. Yeah, don't call it Toy Story 4, call it Toy Story the Dusty Museum or something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, Stan and Ford decide they're going to sail the world together, which is something they had talked about doing as kids. And with nobody there to run the mystery shack, Stan is about to shut it down, but Seuss appears and gives this impassioned speech. We've been talking for a while now and, and not really talked about how great Seuss yeah. is. I love Seuss. He's a, he's a good character in multiple ways. He's almost like given too much depth and development and screen time because he starts as just like a doof on the side who just happens to be there and is always kind of the stupid guy. But then he gets multiple episodes that take his life very seriously so that we come to care quite a bit by Seuss by the end of the show's run. And uh, Seuss gives an impassioned speech about the meaning of paranormal tourist traps and and why they need to endure, why it's important to have Fiji mermaids in the world, sparking people's imagination. And so after this, Stan decides that this needs to be the new proprietor of the Mystery Shack, and Seuss gets the keys Willy Wonka style. Yeah. This is a moment where I, it had me thinking that one of my... Now, I don't know if you'd call it a life goal, but maybe a life dream is to somehow find a way to make you, Brian, a Crunkle Stan character, a proprietor of a, uh, what would you even call this, a roadside attraction that deals with perhaps faked paranormal things. And how, do, how do I make you the Grunkle Stan? I would do it. That would be a dream. Yeah, guys, send me uh, Kickstarter money so I can <laughs> buy uh, Marsh's Free Museum and that'll be the, the start. Yeah, Dan sent me that message uh, after wrapping up the show, and I, I heart-reacted that because <laughs> definitely that's that's part of the connection, me, to this series. That that would be a fun path, I think. But then, of course, you got to, you know, as with any business, you'd have to make it profitable <laughs> somehow. So they do exist. They're I, out there. I could write a business plan around. Got to find the right niche, though. The right market. And the right number of podcast listeners willing to throw their Patreon money at us. That's, that's right. Uh, we'll get just as many responses as we do for the, uh, the end of episode reviews. <laughs> um, but uh, so now the summer is over and the twins are uh, shown off to the bus station by their, their family and friends. They get aboard the, the charter bus that's going to take them back to California. And the bus driver is Agent Cooper from Twin Peaks, which is, you wouldn't know unless you know, but it's a, another good casting coup. Yeah, there, there's a lot. It's like a, you called it an embarrassment of rich, riches. For me, it was like a fantasy draft of voice actors who are appearing. Alfred Molina, who we mentioned in the Boogie Nights episode, appears as the multi-bear 
in a couple of episodes, this creepy bear thing that's like multiple bears attached together. There's um, Bender from Futurama appears. Weird Al appears for an episode. I was waiting for Weird Al to show up because there's like a there's a laundry list of people who do cartoon cameos these days. And like once Patton Oswalt showed up, I knew eventually Weird Al was going to be there. Unfortunately, not one of the better episodes, but still okay. And it and it was one that developed um, the the Ford and Dipper right. alliance. And uh, Linda Cardellini of Freaks and Geeks fame. And the founder fame. <laughs> Quote unquote fame. Um, she's Wendy, right? Right. I mean, there's, there's, you could just keep going. Uh, there's TJ Miller playing the same character oh, that yeah. TJ Miller always plays. <laughs> I kind of got tired of him by the end of the episode. <laughs> um, or by the end of the series, rather. Uh, but uh, yeah, lots of favorites. Uh, Justin Roiland, as I mentioned basically doing his Morty shtick. Uh, he even gets to do some uh, infomercials like he does in the uh, recurring interdimensional cable Rick and Morty episodes. There's there's a fake movie trailers or movie titles bit one episode that just to me was Troy McClure, except that uh, Phil Hartman was murdered. So we couldn't actually have Troy McClure. Yeah, or him. But they're aboard the bus now, uh, being driven home by Agent Cooper. And, oh, uh, right before they get on, Wendy hands Dipper a note. And she says, read this when you miss Gravity Falls. And it's signed by a bunch of the friends and supporting characters. And it says, see you next summer. It's a good, it's a good stinger. I think it works thematically, too, because it's like a good reminder that you're never at the end of your journey. There's always more to come. There's always more growth. There's always more adventure. And I liked it as an ending. It hit the notes I thought it should hit for sure. Yeah, I, I like it. I like this <laughs> ending a lot. And like, even as the credits roll there, you see like little postcard snippets of the supporting characters doing stuff in the, in the post script and just a good culmination. Definitely. Uh, so after all that talking about what happens generally in the in the plot as a whole, are there some other things that you wanted to shout out? Uh, maybe some favorite episodes, just things you wanted to dissect a little more? I'm going to pull that out now. And I have notes for all of the episodes. I have... <laughs> I got carried away on the note-taking for this one. 13 pages. Wow. Uh, I'll say I also took a few notes about every episode and... I went through and bolded the ones I want to talk about specifically, and it's about 20 of the episodes. So uh, definitely we, we did some thorough research. We're not going <laughs> to keep you here all night, but I just had a couple bullet points I wanted to shout yeah. out about several. For me, this show has its epicness and it has its myth arc. And the thing that I thought it did best overall is kind of taking the character conflict and the character development and the character relationships and echoing that with something supernatural. And when it did that, particularly in ways that were not necessarily like biggest monster ever exposition dump type stories, that really resonated with me. I think these are episodes that might not be essential in the story of the show, but really resonated for me. And yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, 
the episodes that are my favorites. Well, except the finale, because the finale is great. Um, but other than that, my favorites are ones that would probably uh, could be called filler episodes. Though, like I said, they do a good job of tying them in generally. Right. And I, I think a, a lot of shows and movies have played on like aligning adolescence with horror things because what happens to your body, what you have to endure with other kids, the encountering of the great unknown in many ways, like parallels the experience that horror characters have to go through. And so all the supernaturally horror-y things really does align well with the character development we're seeing. The thread that I thought really brought this out was Dipper's unrequited crush on Wendy. Some of my favorite episodes mine that and Dipper's longing to be better and bigger and more impressive and more desirable than he is into something. Um, yeah, I felt that. Yeah. The inconveniencing is an early one. Uh, That's the one that introduces um, the crush on Wendy. And... Um, I mean, one of the things, one of the only things I knew going into this show, well, the two things was siblings go and spend the summer with their grandfather at a paranormal tourist trap. The only other thing I knew basically was Dipper has a crush on Wendy. And it, it takes till episode five for that to be established. Right. Although it's something you can see coming, even just from the credit sequence, I, I guess that she was going to be a crush character from for Dipper. But he has a lot of really good episodes where he has to reckon with that. There's the summer ween, which was appears in my upper half of the episodes where he tends to be a cool kid to go to a Halloween party, but actually has to learn to trick or treat. That's always a great plot in a coming of age saga is do I still trick or treat and the reckoning with that. I've seen that like three or four times and I feel like it always works as a good metaphor for the ending of childhood. I quite liked the one called Double Dipper, uh, where to create the most optimal environment for connecting with Wendy, he makes a bunch of copies of himself at a party uh -huh. uh, to just be micromanaging every detail of the event. And uh, uh, this one was kind of Calvin and Hobbesy to me um, because they specifically talk about how they're going to avoid fighting with each other. Cause in Calvin and Hobbes, he does this multiple times and is always fighting with his clones. Cause Calvin is a very disagreeable character. He doesn't get along with others. So when there's multiple of them, they fight, but, uh, uh Dipper, uh, conjectures that because they've all thought this through, they've all been ready for the day that there would be clones of him. They will be able to get along. I like it. I mean, basically all of these, you can take some element of it and extrapolate it into some, you know, overall arc about growing up. And here it's like, he feels like he needs to be more than he is in multiple versions of himself to really impress this girl that he has this kind of distant affection towards. And it literalizes that by forcing him to clone himself to actually make these moves that he plans to make on her actually work. And I don't know, I just feel like there's like five episodes that all work really well that have something like that. The one that kind of ends that arc is <clears throat> the second episode of the second season called Into the Bunker. And this is the Thing episode you mentioned. And this is the one where um, 
Dipper essentially confesses his feelings to Wendy, although Wendy reveals that she basically knew the whole time, which if she didn't, again, she wasn't paying very much attention. It was pretty obvious because for a bunch of reasons, but mostly Dipper just does this thing that where he kind of mutters something like, oh my gosh, I'm so totally in love with you. And Wendy will be like, what? He'll be like, uh, could you grab that thing over there? And that happens frequently throughout the first season. But I just like this one. It basically forced them together and just them, like the monster there is something that always pretends to be someone else. And so like this fear of having to be something that you aren't. And I don't know, it just, it's a really poignant thread for me and, and, and well done. And kind of plays to something that I think is a strength and a weakness of the show, which is that it really empathizes really well with Dipper. And I would say in general, it's very generous and empathetic with the male characters. I feel like the female characters get a little bit of a shorter shrift. They tend to have more exaggerated personalities and don't get quite the nuanced storylines that the male characters do. Like Mabel never has a serious romantic arc, which I feel could have benefited the show. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. It's it's very much from a, a male point of view, but I mean, I think when you have an auteur project created by a man, that is going to tend to happen. Sure. I, I think my single favorite episode was late in season one. It's called Carpet DM, and it's the episode where Mabel and Dipper body switch. Yes, they find a carpet that allows characters to swap bodies. And we get some fun permutations because originally it's Dipper and Mabel, but it it doesn't stay with that. It keeps going. And it, it perfectly, I mean, it's almost an obvious one. Like, you don't even need to say, what is the metaphor here? It's like, can you properly empathize and take the perspective of the other person and understand where they're coming from? and the things that they're going through. And it it very much hits the arcs it needs to hit for that. But it just goes in goofball ways and fun ways and silly ways, but also poignant ways. The best part is there's this B plot of this one where Seuss (laughs) switches personalities with this pet pig that uh, Mabel got uh, earlier in the the show in an episode I think we'll talk about um, in a minute here. And what's crazy is Seuss's life markedly improves <laughs> like, because of the actions taken by the pig while in his body. Like he can't even say words. And like he's making lots of money at the shop and like getting dates with beautiful women and stuff just by being a pig in his body. It's so funny. Uh, I love this episode. It made me laugh so hard. Yeah. What about you, Brian? I, I'm on. I'm on a very similar page. I'm agreeing with everything you say, and I'm smiling. I'm drinking wine, and uh, one episode though that I want to shout out. I I kind of mentioned it. Is it's called the Time Traveler's Pig. It's the time loop ish episode. This is where we meet the Justin Roiland as essentially Morty character. It's pretty early. It's uh, it's episode nine. And it's one where Dipper is trying for a good rep of the day because uh, the T.J. Miller character asks Wendy out on this day and he's trying to prevent that from happening. 
make things turn his way towards uh, Dipper's favor. And even this one, it does kind of what I'm talking about, where it takes this adolescent situation conundrum of like he feels like he has to make the moment exactly right for this girl that he has distant feelings towards to keep her in his grasp. And the way that it personifies that in supernatural terms is a time loop where he keeps trying to make this exact moment with Wendy work. But I mean, we've talked plenty about why we like this uh, time loop premise. Uh, but then in addition, there's just a lot of funny stuff. I mean, I like this time traveler guy. Something that uh, he's involved in is that he has to go around fixing anomalies. And so we see them jumping around in time and they jump into previous episodes. And if you watch those earlier episodes, you'll see that the time travel is actually there in the background. But there's just lots of funny bits. Um, yeah, there's, that, that episode is in my top two or three. So my top three I had was I had Carpet DM, the last Weird Mageddon. Weird Mageddon, for me, was part four. I did it based on the Disney Plus mm -hmm, episode mm -hmm. breakdown. And then the Time Traveler's Pig. Um, so I'm right up there with you. That I thought that was that had that at the top of my ranking for for quite a while. Okay, the uh, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, if I'm throwing in a fourth, the next one for me, uh, that, I'm surprised we haven't mentioned yet. Oh, well, let's is, see. It. It's is it called, the it's is it the Rock of Fire? Episode? It's the Rock of Fire That's my number episode. <laughs> this TV show has a Rock of Fire episode. Could it be more perfect for our current situation? <laughs> this is called Seuss and the Real Girl, and it's an episode about Seuss's love life or lack thereof. I, I knew you liked this episode as soon as I watched it because a it has a Chuck E. Cheese Rock of Fire explosion major i was gonna say subplot but it's basically the plot but then it's paralleled against the japanese dating sim which you have talked about talked multiple times <laughs> yes because seuss finds out that his cousin is getting married and his grandmother tells him he needs to get a date to come to the <laughs> wedding party uh and he has no game and I, I i relate to this so what he's going to do is he's going to <laughs> study up using a a Japanese dating sim game, uh, as I've mentioned before. But I actually think, so this game that he's playing in the episode is based on games like Tokimeki Memorial, but I think this episode may have inspired the game Doki Doki Literature Club, if you've heard of that. Yeah, if you watch on YouTube, there's like a epic showdown of the rock of fire is coming to life battling our protagonists and everybody in the youtube comments was saying amazing how one episode inspired both five night at freddy's five nights at freddy's and doki doki literature club because in that game it's um sort of a horror parody of these japanese dating sims and one of the girls like takes over your computer to be with you. And it's it's it seems very derivative of this episode because Seuss eventually does meet a girl at the mall who, like him, is into the rock of fire explosion. You can't make this up. Uh, it's, it's, it's called Hoo-Ha Owl's Jamboree, but Billy Bob is there. Yeah, I noticed that. It was exactly Billy Bob from Rock of Fire. 
Uh, so the girl, the virtual girlfriend that he's made in the game is not on board with this, with him romancing <laughs> real world girls. And so they have this big showdown, a rock a fire fight versus the, the virtual woman. And uh, yeah, this one's up there for me. Um, Seuss has an N64 on his shelf in this episode. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, one thing I wanted to say is that if you go to like um, comic book conventions, you see a lot of guys dressed in like dipper outfits with the pine tree hats and the vests. And it's like 20 something dudes. And uh, one of my takeaways from this show is if you think you're a dipper watching this show and you're our age, you're probably a Seuss. Uh, you gotta, you got to come to terms with that. you got to accept that. Where I'm at in my life is I want to transition to being a stan. Okay. Yeah. So I, you I want to move from Seuss to stan. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Now, one thing I really liked about this episode, and the reason it's near the top of my pantheon too, is that... The two epi- the two plots of this Japanese dating sim and then the, you know, animatronic robots at a kid's thing play into each other so nicely that it, it doesn't even feel contrived when they collide at the end. Like, it really naturally leads up to that, and it, it just all works together. And, like, honestly, it takes Seuss's character very seriously and, like, the ways that he might be an interesting and appealing person but also might be an off-putting person and how you have to have the right kind of personality to actually click with this type of person. But there might be someone like that out there and everyone, even the Seusses, need love and need to move on beyond their childish mindsets. And it's like in a moment when Seuss gets very serious character development that's in the midst of all this insanity and it's really up there. It's it's a fantastic episode. Another thing I did, Brian, is I rated each of the forty one episodes on the Is It Good scale. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, we'll have to put that as a supplement to the episode or something. <laughs> but this was how a, how many got uh, got a five or higher? How many got a five or higher? Yeah. Oh man, like thirty four out of forty one or something okay. like that. Right. I actually. Uh, Believe it or not, I didn't give out any eights, except if you would have counted the finale as one whole thing, I would have given that an eight. Well, it's still pretty good. Still yeah. pretty good. Um, one more episode that I want to put into my pantheon is the second Time Traveler episode. It's called Blendon's Game. And oh, it's a little complicated to explain, but it involves uh, them, again, a deep dive into Seuss's character. Uh, they they want to find out why Seuss doesn't like his birthday, and it involves them time traveling to the town ten years in the past, and so we see younger versions of all the characters, and they make some good creative hay out of that premise. Like uh, we have a run in between uh, five year old Wendy and ten year old Dipper. Uh, that obviously that age. Difference doesn't work either. <laughs> or uh, I guess he's 12, five-year-old and 10, five-year-old and 12-year-old, but, you know, kind of a, a reversal. Just a lot of good moments in that one. Uh, meanwhile, in the future, there's like a time battle going on. Uh, lots of like cyberpunk Tron-ish war games. 
and there's a monster who is a cyclops with a clock for an eye called a cyclox. <laughs> and that immediately boosts the episode. I mean, me. they just get so much campy fun out of how in this future world, everything is future blank or and time, time blank. blank. <laughs> they laugh pretty hard. This episode didn't rank quite so highly for me. I wasn't quite as enamored with the Trani battle stuff as you were. I, I thought it was good. It's still in my upper half of episodes. I, I'm a big Rick and Morty fan, I will admit. So, so I, Yeah, I can see that. But um, this <laughs> by the end of this episode, I was like, okay, Seuss is like maybe the third or second most developed character on this show at this point. Like with the most sympathetic backstory. Given that his like origin is just he's the guy who walks around and he's he's shaped like what's the name of the purple guy in McDonald's Grimace? Grimace. Yeah. He's a Grimace shaped dude who just says dude over and over again and all of a sudden he's like the deepest character on the goddamn show. Like what is it even doing Gravity Falls? Why did you do this? Like more deep than Mabel at this point. He's like one of the protagonists, but I, I still enjoyed it, yeah. Because he's got this whole backstory about how his dad didn't come and how that kind of scarred him from, like, connecting to his birthday, but also connecting to other people and family units and all this stuff. I don't know. Uh, what about some not-so-good episodes, Brian? I had a short list of episodes I did not like very much. Sure. So for me... There's, there's two that I, I don't care for, and they come in pretty rapid succession. It's episode six and episode eight. So uh, episode six is my least favorite. It's called Dipper versus Manliness, and it's because the themes are just too on the nose. It's uh, Dipper grappling with the fact that he's not manly enough, which we already know that he's struggling with that. This is an entire episode where it's just nailed home over and over and he meets these creatures called the Manotaurs who are going to train him to be a man. And, I mean, it's fine. It I hate it less as I've watched it five times. But <laughs> um, also there's a, a, like, one of the signs that he's not manly is he likes the song Disco Girl by the band Baba. And it's, it's Dancing Queen by ABBA. But... For the whole rest of the show, all their parody names for things are great. Baba is terrible. <laughs> it's so stupid and lazy, and I hate it. There's a different episode with a... Uh, it's about a pinball game, and the pinball company is called Ballway. And if you are a pinball fanatic, you know that the two major pinball companies are Midway and Bally. So to make a fictional pinball company that combines the two into Ballway... That's very clever. <laughs> Baba is dumb. Okay. Uh, that That's near the bottom of my episodes, too. Another thing I didn't like about this episode is it came right on the heel of the inconvenience scene, which a theme of that one is Dipper pretends and reckons with the fact that he's not older. And then one episode later, Dipper reckons and pretends with the fact that he's not very manly. And it's like not exactly the same thing, but it's close enough to the same thing that I was like, we literally one or two episodes. What is it? So yeah, that, different yeah, man next episode six. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It's one episode later and it just felt kind of pointless. And 
the B plot is something that was pretty unnecessary too on that one. It was Stan gets a crush on lazy Susan, who is like uh, an old lady in the town who we frequently see. And it's one of few threads that the show more or less just discards. Oh, well, that's true. It doesn't come back. But I, I kind of like that with Stan, just because something I haven't said is um, I think an important difference of Stan not being the grandfather, but being an uncle is uh, in the in the Gobblewonker episode, episode two, there's a mention of, uh, you know, there's a plot that Stan basically doesn't have anybody in his life. He, he there's like a little little. 50s boy or whatever like uh who says maybe he doesn't have anybody who loves him <laughs> and i think that's actually important to stan's character it's yeah. like he doesn't have a lot going on as far as interactions with other people um one other episode that i am not especially fond of is uh is episode eight it's called irrational treasure and this is another one where I thought the theme was too on the nose, but for Mabel this time, and it's Mabel is silly. She's kind of grappling with that. Is she too silly? The storyline is that there's these uh, convoluted conspiracy theories that have been going on throughout American history, and it leads to like a treasure. But I thought it was weird that they're mocking conspiracy theories and how they're convoluted when... Like, that's the whole show. Right. Yeah. Yet, the reason this one bothered me is on top of that, like, all of a sudden, it, like, has this goofy joke about the 12th and a half president of the United States, I think is what the number is. And it's, like, this fictional president and the whole United States was wacky, but we don't, it got erased from history. And it just felt really out of place in the show which is really about like this small set of characters in this tiny Oregon town. Like the whole scope of it just felt weird and not in place with where the show was at that point. And I'm with you that I was also on my bottom three episodes. So but the goofy we're really president, up here. The goofy president was yet another Alex Hirsch character. Oh, was it? No. He he has a lot of good one-liners in it. To the point that I wish I actually liked the episode and the character more. Like, the, if you just, like, were to take the, the funny things that the president says in that episode, that would be, like, a fun comedy sketch for me. But, it, like, it didn't fit with what Gravity yeah. Falls was for me. I mean, I feel that same way. Is that if there's an episode that I don't like, it's still got plenty of moments that I do. Right. Uh, what, so, were there any other uh, lowlights for you? Yeah. Um, I was not sold on the thing that it toys with a little bit which is let's do an anthology episode where we have three stories in one so the very first one is called bottomless pit and the framing story is a bunch of them i think it's grunkle stan mabel dipper and maybe wendy i can't remember fall into a bottomless pit which is just on happens to be like 100 yards from the, the mystery shack and it's got three little stories and this first one, when I say first one, there was two, one of each season of this format. Uh, this first anthology episode really felt like we were just getting the leftover scraps of stories they didn't think were quite good enough or interesting enough to make a full episode. Now, 
I will say that that turned around in the second one. Yeah, the second one is stronger. And I would say that this is the other connection I see to The Simpsons. Is like, occasionally The Simpsons will do three-part anthology episodes. Oh, yeah. Futurama does it too. Oh, I guess Treehouse of Horror is always three episodes. Right. And it's like, also kind of spooky. So I'm trying to remember what was in the first one. Episode it had the pinball machine, I think. Right. It had... Um, it's less memorable than the second one. The second one had better stuff. Yeah. Oh, there was like the teeth, the, the teeth, the teeth one, that yeah. tell truth, the truth all the time. Right, right, right. So I felt like that didn't get much of a payoff. The second one, it did things like if you're gonna do an episode where you have nine or eight minute bits instead of twenty two minute bits, make it be things that you just strictly could not stretch out to twenty two minutes. Not things that weren't good enough to be stretched out if you there's like kind of fine distinction there so one is in the second one by the way the second one is called let's see it's called the little gift shop of horrors and the framing story there is grunkle stan talks to the camera as if you the viewer are a shopper at his his mystery shack at his, his gift shop and kind of like in the beginning of the Aladdin, where the genie is trying to sell you stuff, he's trying to sell you things that all have stories. But each one of those stories was just a little too weird and wild to be a, a full episode. The, my favorite of which was they made a claymation episode. It wasn't fully claymation, but the monsters were all claymation in it. And I really enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. I'm a fan of old Ray Harryhausen movies, and this is a tribute to that. They have a character named Harry Claymore, who's the Ray Harryhausen stand-in. And he says that, of course nobody stop-motions things frame by frame. That would take forever. I sold my soul for dark magic to make them animate themselves. Right. Uh, also, there's a, a segment of that episode about a witch who controls a bunch of little crawling hands. And the hand witch wears a cape that is from Manos Hands of Fate. Uh, so just another instance where they were like telegraphing straight to my brain. <laughs> Brian, you need to watch and like this show because we made it for you. Well, the whole gimmick about body parts or portions of yourself disappearing is just, I've seen that a bunch of times and it always clicks with me. Even in the... What's the weird Pixar onward where they just get his pants and his half, half dead. dead? Yeah, that is just a sick joke that I thought was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so something that I haven't mentioned yet, but I did want to mention is a prominent creative voice on the show was Matt Chapman, who might not be a name you recognize, but he was the main guy behind Homestar Runner. So if you're around our age, you probably remember Homestar Runner in some capacity. Maybe you watched the Trogdor Spemail, or maybe you watched a bunch of the Spemails, or maybe you watched everything on the website for years, which is basically what I did, and uh, was surprised when the Brothers Chapman kind of went silent in 2010 and just stopped making Homestar content and wondered what could they possibly be doing. Well, I only realized in my second watch through that this is what Matt Chapman was doing. He 
is like head writer on a bunch of the episodes. And there are some episodes where you can really tell that this is like a Homestar cartoon writ large into a full half hour. There's an episode where a Street Fighter character comes to life uh, that really felt like uh, the Stinko Man cartoons that they had, which were like uh, a Mega Man character comes to life and just has this super emphatic way that he talks about everything. Um, and the, the clearest instance, well, I, I mentioned this here because in that uh, episode, Matt Chapman plays the Hand Witch. Uh, he also plays one of Mabel's boyfriends, Mermando, who is a Hispanic mermaid, basic, or Hispanic merman, sorry, essentially doing the strong bad voice. But the, the most Homestar-ish episode, I thought, was the uh, episode where Matt Chapman was head writer, and it's all about an NSYNC-like boy band. Uh, this one is barely in the upper half of my episodes in the rankings. It's kind of a dumb episode, but it does a lot of things that I like, and it had a literal NSYNC member voicing the fake NSYNC band. Who was it? I think it was Lance Bass. I like that. And, uh, yeah, this was essentially, if you are familiar with Homestar, a Teen Girl Squad comic turned into a whole episode of TV. That whenever there were bits where characters would talk in exaggerated versions of, like, stereotypical media presences, whether it was video game characters or pop band members or, or anything like that, it felt very Homestar-ish to me. Like the same, I don't know, tone of humor. Yeah, and the band member names are like Craigie Z, Leggy P, Griggy G, and Deep Chris. <laughs> and that part is like, this is, I could tell. I could tell who that was writing this. Sorry, yeah. yeah, I like that episode. I mean, it's low-hanging fruit to pick on boy bands, and I felt like that wasn't necessarily needed, but... It was always funny, and they always the way they made the boy bands like so stupid that they couldn't even interact with society made me crack up. It reminded me of the Simpsons episode where Marge adopts a biker gang, and the biker gang doesn't know how to interact with society. And they say, like, Mrs. Simpson, I killed my pencil. No, you broke your pencil. And there's lots of jokes like that in the boy band episode. Any other episodes that needed to get their due from you? Um, I feel like we've hit most of them. Honestly, you could do a deep dive on almost every single episode that was going on here. There's Every episode is rich and strives for and accomplishes different things. And um, one I wanted to circle back on was the one called Northwest Mansion Mystery. This is the prime uh, Dipper connects with the Mean Girl Pacifica episode. And I really liked the humanizing of the Pacifica character. I feel like they could have done even more with that in the series. And one thing I liked about this episode is it's like the most explicitly ghosts episode. I mean, for all the paranormal stuff, there's not all that much focus on like traditional ghosts who like move things in the house around and stuff like that. And this one is that. But it is like, there's some really scary and creepy stuff and like twisted, messed up imagery in this that like, it's not toying around with 
here's a, a sheep with two eyes on it. Like this is ghosts inhabiting this house, severely haunting it. And I like that it went there. I like the Pacifica stuff and the way it humanized her and deepened the history of Gravity Falls. That was another highlight for me. Yeah, I like that one too. So are we ready at long last to declare whether Gravity Falls is good? <laughs> I, I think people may have uh, derived what our answer is going to be, but we'll see. Um, Did you have some more good things, not so good things? Any, 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 any other things you wanted to talk about? The last thing I wanted to say is something I noticed early in the show's run that I feel like it kind of grew out of. I felt like the early episodes leaned a little bit more on random humor and like, oh, we're just going to have a character say a silly thing that doesn't relate to anything else that's going on, but it's silly, so we'll laugh. And then kind of moving on from it type of joke rhythm that I might have liked when I was 13, but didn't connect to me at age 33. I feel like it figured out its voice as it went um, We've talked a little bit about random humor. I feel like, uh, what's the name of the other show you brought over the garden wall had, had a little bit of the random humor too, but the humor grew on me as it went. And I feel like the comedy MVP was Grunkle Stan. So many good old person, I'm a grandpa basically jokes. And there was one that I just like want to get tattooed on me. It's like he, I forget what the context was, but he says, Oh man, finally a legitimate reason to punch a teenager or something like that. <laughs> I was like, uh, one, one I, I like is he, he walks into a room and Mabel screams. I think about something else, but uh, he's like in his like bathrobe or something. And he says, bodies change, sweetheart. Bodies change. <laughs> There's so much stuff like that. It's so good. Uh, they do such a good job of. Just this constant presence as a slightly off-putting old man. It's so good. Um, but I'm ready to rate. Are you ready to rate? Yes, I am as well. And then I have one last follow-up question. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, you know, mysteries must always lie ahead. So uh, you are our guest, Dan. So you've clearly put some thought into this. <laughs> Is Gravity Falls good? TV shows are really hard to rate on the Is It Good scale. Because you have a lot more content. And so you have higher peaks and you have lower troughs. How do you reconcile those? Do you go with the highest of the high peaks? Do you go with the lowest of the low valleys, the, the worst moments? How much do you let those worst moments rate against the high moments? Really, what is the whole package? And Gravity Falls is indeed a whole package. Uh, across 40 episodes, it never really loses sight of trying to tell a complete story, an emotional arc for a set of kids. And I thought of the movie Titanic. What do I think of when I think of Titanic? It's got flaws, but as an experience, it holds up. It really does. I waffled a lot. I early on thought that this was a six. I drifted towards a seven at the... Uh, season two, kind of mid-finale. It's like, this is kind of elevating. By the time we get to the finale, this really holds together as, as something. I actually think, I do think it's a masterpiece. I think it holds together the way that masterpieces do. I'm giving it, 
I have a couple times when I've been on the fence between a seven and an eight, I've given it a seven. I did that with Parasite. I did that with uh, Boogie Nights. Here I'm landing on the other side. I think about the overall experience of it, the magic it brings, and just the way that it's able to hold together. The finale really ties everything together. And you walk away from the show really feeling like you were a part of something special. And in a way that not too many things make you feel that way. Truly, it's it's an experience that's special. It's something that draws you in and really makes you feel it. And even though I'm not a 12-year-old, there were moments it brought me back to being 12. And it brought me to the challenges and difficulties of, of that. And it's not a flawless show. There are things I would change. But it holds together enough that I'm going to give it a Torday good. I'm going to give it the 8 out of 8. And I don't care if you don't give it that, Brian. I know you love it more than I do. I think it deserves it. So that's where I'm going with it. Yes! As Seuss says, yes, Y-U-S. Uh, I agree. I could not give this anything short of an 8 because it does feel so tailor-made for me. But I legitimately think it is very well made. I've seen few other TV shows that wrap things up so satisfyingly in the end. Uh, they really did take all the arcs that they'd set up with this thriving community of supporting characters and bring it all to fruition in a way that felt earned. Um, you, you couldn't do a third season, uh, even though there are summers ahead. So fertile ground for fan fiction. I, I love it. Uh, I will watch it again at some point, and it may not be that long. Yeah, this is, you mentioned a fantasy draft. It pulls in so many things that I like, so many creative forces. You have the Homestar guy writing it. You have Morty. You have Bimo just in the mix. And then you've got story concepts that I like. You've got time loops and... You know, pinball machines come to life and just a lot of things that I like and realized well. It's funny. It's mysterious. I recommend it. Check this out because it is good at the very, very least. <laughs> I'm there. I th I'm with you. I think it's a excellent show, a Pantheon level finale, a really high watermark for the way you can connect with a show aimed at, you know, a preteen and audience really. Um, it really pulls off that perfectly and it doesn't shy away from being darker and more serious. And given your enthusiasm for it, Brian, if you're willing to spoil, where does this rank on the coveted, the esteemed, Small screen 66, ranking of your top 66 TV shows. Okay, so for people who are unfamiliar, uh, back in the day, I've mentioned a few times, I did a list of my 100 favorite movies as of 2013 on Dan's blog site, and it's kind of what reconnected us after a few years out of high school. Um, but I was going to follow that up with a series on my favorite TV shows, uh, which got underway in 2015, and I never really finished. I got through like uh, 12 of an intended 66 entries. And uh, there have subsequently been shows that I've seen that I, I liked and would join that group. And uh, currently I would put Gravity Falls at number three. Um, 
And uh, since I may never write the articles, uh, the number two and number one would be Breaking Bad and The Twilight Zone. Uh, but it is very up there. And in terms of shows that seem made for me, it's number one. So, yeah, uh, I wasn't sure that I was going to read this because it's, it's a little spoilery, but we've we've covered every other aspect of the show and we've both given it an eight. So I, I did want to end with Dipper's final line from the show when he is uh, driving home on the bus. He says, if you've ever taken a road trip through the Pacific Northwest, you've probably seen a bumper sticker for a place called Gravity Falls. It's not on any maps and most people have never heard of it. Some people think it's a myth, but if you're curious, don't wait. Take a trip. Find it. It's out there somewhere in the woods, waiting. Bam. Episode 50 of The Goods film podcast right there. It's in the can. And uh, I, I promise I have said before, the last few selections I've made, I think I've queued up movies I've already seen and loved, and I just... And by dropping an eight on it, and it, it I, I don't feel very proud of myself when I do that because uh, easy to just pick something you already like and hold it up as a healthy on example of something that is good. It does. It doesn't feel uh, critically substantive. So I promise that at least my next selection will not fall into that category. It will be <laughs> more in Care Bears realm. Yeah, a, a little more dubious. Uh, so so that waits ahead, but. What is our very next thing, Dan? Sure. What, what, what comes right up after this episode? So after the 25th episode, we did a spectacular where we revisited the previous 25 episodes. Brian, I'm thinking we'll do another spectacular. We'll revisit episodes 26 through 50 up until this episode and give out some awards and do some reflections. Yeah, and we can follow up a little bit on uh, meeting the Rock of Fire Man. And then, depending on where things land, my personal bandwidth, we might have a Greatest Hits retrospective episode mixing together some clips we like of our first 50 episodes. But at some point, we will indeed review a movie again. And... It will be September by then, for sure, given that as of the recording of this, we are about a few days away from September. And so I think we are squarely in fall, or at least we're approaching fall, the beginning of fall, the beginning of the school year. I have seen many high school movies. I haven't seen every single one. And I'm Brian, I'm going to ask you to watch with me one that I have never seen before. And this is not your typical high school movie that's focused on comedy and romance, but it is a genre movie, at least to my knowledge, that happens to fit within the high school realm. And it is the 2005 detective neo-noir movie, Brick, directed by Ryan Johnson, the guy who directed The Last Jedi and Knives Out. This was his like first major film. It stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as a high school detective in uh, a mystery from 2005 called Brick. Oh, I'm curious. We'll keep the mysteries coming. I've never heard of this movie, so yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, I've, I've heard some good things, some mixed things, and I'm hoping that we will get to the bottom of whatever Brick is. So 
Listeners, thank you very much. I've enjoyed these past 50 episodes. Brian, I very much enjoyed what you brought to the table here. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all in our spectacular. So listeners, now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Gravity Falls or any film or, I suppose, TV show that we've previously discussed. Each week, at least as soon as we start receiving them, we're posting with a little bit of a lag, so I'm not surprised we haven't received them yet, but we will soon. Each week, we'll read one of your reviews on this podcast, and if we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com, and we look forward to hearing from you. That's right. We want to build a community. We want to get folks talking about movies, and uh, we hope to hear from you. Thanks for joining us for this 50th episode of The Goods. Hope you tune in for 50 more. And we'll see you next week.